The Talkin' Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. The Golf Society is founded on the belief that the latest golf trends, fashion and concepts shouldn't be compromised, but shared with every golfer. Shop online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Ben Hogan, like many of our heroes of old, has gone from the whispers to lore to legend. For some, he is the greatest golfer that ever lived, and for others, he is almost a deity. The purpose of today's podcast is not to tear down the legend, nor is it to fuel the fires of his lore. Today on the podcast, we merely want to explore some of the greater myths of Ben Hogan, and by using historical accounts from his own time, shed light on the man, the golfer, and the legend. This won't be the last time we dive into history of Ben Hogan, but my hope is that it will at least give you a unique perspective on how all things change with time, even our legends. Today on our show, we welcome Jeff Martin. Jeff retired from Wall Street as an investment banker in 2004 and has dedicated his post-Wall Street career to understanding the golf swing. It was on this journey that led Jeff into a deep dive into the legend we're going to talk about today, Ben Hogan. Jeff also operates the website called Thinking About Golf and has just recently appeared on the PGA Tour podcast On the Mark with Mark Immelman. Jeff, thank you so much for joining the 26th episode of Talking Golf History. Well, thank you, uh, Connor. It's uh, terrific to be here. I'm glad we had a chance to do this. It's something we've talked about, and I think we'll cover a lot of interesting ground today. Um, now, I think everyone will learn some things, and uh, I certainly learned a lot in this deep dive, and uh, I think uh, I think the uh, life of Hogan actually is much richer when you take a look at um, some of the things that I discovered in going through the historical record. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So you've spent a lot of time studying up on Ben Hogan over the years. What's What really started you on this journey? Well, uh, you, you sort of alluded to it, and I go through this uh, background in the um, introduction of the book, you know, on, on the Thinking About Golf website. I've published, um, you know, five chapters of uh, the biography that I've been working on, um, Hogan as it happened, setting the record straight. And, you know, as you alluded, I was uh, doing research on the history of the golf swing. And uh, I had uh, was tasked with putting together an outline, you know, for a publisher. And I wasn't happy with the... um, the level of detail that I had in the instruction books at my disposal. So I decided to go to the USGA Museum 
which is only about 50 miles from my apartment. And I asked if I could come to the library there and go through the golf magazines. And uh, so I, I, and they let me do that. And for um, four or five months in 2016, I spent uh, usually two days a week uh, with my iPhone and a little tripod. And I would go through issues of um, these terrific magazines, you know, uh, the American Golfer, Golf Illustrated, you know, those sadly folded during the Depression. And there was a smaller magazine called Golfing, uh, which did publish through the Depression. And then eventually Golf Digest began publishing in the 1950s. And, you know, and I would go through each month, you know, each issue looking for articles that talked, interesting articles that would shed light on the golf swing or maybe shed light on the influence of an equipment change, like when uh, the golf ball was made bigger and lighter and uh, the reaction to that, uh, the transition from hickory shafts to steel shafts and what have you. And, and sort of in the course of that, I... Um, I gotten up to 1940, and uh, looking at uh, this this magazine called Golfing, I, I believe Herb Graffis was the publisher, and on the cover was uh, Ben Hogan, and I was surprised. I was surprised to see him dominating the cover of this magazine because, you know, I was familiar as I'm sure most of the listeners are with with the lore that um, Hogan was not. You know, the Hogan that we knew, the Hogan that everyone thinks of is the Hogan after the accident to um, when he won six of his major championships and had, um, you know, uh, mythical status in terms of ball striking. And, you know, I had seen the Ken Venturi interview and in the Ken Venturi interview, Hogan is, uh, you know, very frank that he had. Uh, difficulty driving the golf ball, was suffering from a smothered hook, and that, you know, he was really kind of at wit's end about whether or not he could continue to to play and and, uh, successfully on tour. And and those same sentiments were echoed in the um, golf, in in the Life magazine articles, the the most famous one that appeared in 1955, you know, this is my secret, but then a uh, predecessor article in 1954 where pros were asked to guess at Hogan's secret. And in both of those articles, it said that in, Sept- in 1946, and more specifically September 1946, he was at a crossroads and he had to figure out a way to conquer this hook or he couldn't really... Um, you know, continue as a professional golfer. So, so that was sort of my mindset. And I said, well, you know, 1940, you know, 1940, he's, he's dominating the cover of this magazine. And then I got into the, the magazine and looked at the article. And it was even more surprising because um, the author of the article described Hogan as uh, one of the most brilliant shot makers in golf. Harry Cooper, you know, a very well-known pro, wrote a swing analysis, which was, you know, very laudatory. He said that Hogan in maybe 37 or 38 had a swing issue that Harry had helped him with, but that he was, you know, one of the best ball strikers and, interestingly enough, was one of the few golfers or only golfers that he knew that got 100% of his power, you know, into the swing. 
and but 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 then the, but then the capper was Hogan's Kyle Peer, uh, Dick Metz, another very good golfer from Texas, said flatly, "Ben Hogan is the best driver of the ball in golf today." <laughs> you know, and that that sort of that contradicted everything I knew about Ben Hogan at that point. You know, Ben Hogan was a guy who in 1946 didn't think he could stay on tour because he was so a poor driver. So, so, so where, how did this disconnect happen? So that really was the trigger, uh, that, um, you know, uh, caused me to want to look into Hogan more deeply. And, and, and as I found, I mean, that was just the tip of the iceberg of, um, where, you know, what we know, you know, the conventional wisdom about Hogan deviated from the facts. So let's jump into one of them and let's just start kind of, I'd call this the beginning. Um, You know, today we're discussing some of the myths behind the man. One of the common Mm -hmm. things I've heard about Ben Hogan is it took him a decade to win on the PGA Tour. Would you mind jumping into that commonly held belief? Oh, okay. Well, factually, um, you know, you know, all all myths have a, you know a some element of fact to it, and this you know the facts are in February 1930, when Hogan was 17, he arrived at the Texas Open in San Antonio and said, "I want to play as a pro," and he was accompanied with Ralph Gouldall, who was 19. Ralph was from Dallas and Ben was from Fort Worth, and so they declared themselves pro, and uh, Ralph. You know, he actually had a little more success, but, you know, but Ben realized very quickly that he'd made a mistake. And he played, he played at the Texas Open and played at Houston the following week. And by springtime, he was appealing to be reinstated as an amateur uh, because he, he knew he didn't have the game to play as a pro, but that was denied. So the start date is February 1940. In March of 1940 was Hogan's first uh, individual victory at the North-South. So, yes, there was 10 years in between. But very little of those 10 years were actually spent playing on tour. I mean, you know, when, when I, again, when, in my mind, when I, you know, you know, heard this, I, you know, I envisioned that, you know, for ye- season after season, Hogan would, you know, pack up and head out on the tour and, you know, and, and play, you know, several weeks at a time, you know, and then come home broke, et cetera. Well, in truth, he really only did that twice. In the 1931-1932 winter tour, he and Ralph Hutchinson and Jack Grout drove out to the West Coast and he played in a, a, seven, a total of seven tournaments before he ran out of money. And uh, then, you know, he played sporadically, but he, he, you, can, you really can't look at any of his trips to play tour events as an attempt to play on tour full time. You know, he really didn't, um, you know, and, and as and, and he would describe in his in interviews and what have you that he spent uh, five years between that failure, which was, you know, a big disappointment for him. But between, um, 
you know, finishing out of the money at uh, New Orleans in February 1932 and July 1937, when um, he had um, saved enough to try the tour again and, and survive. I mean, one thing, what, what, what Ben learned and what he talked about, you know, uh, afterwards was, you know, in those days, you, it was very difficult to develop your game other than playing on the tour. You know, there was obviously no college golf. There was, you know, very little, um, there were no uh, mini tours. You could play in, you know, some local events. But, you know, he, he concluded that, you know, he needed to have um, enough money to survive week to week until he, you know, found his game. Uh, his competitive game. And, you know, and he did that. I mean, everyone recalls that he had a close call in Oakland of 1938. But uh, the reality is he um, went back on tour in 1937. He did start to win money right away. And, um, you know, you, you folks have to keep in mind that at that time, it cost about $100 a week if you skimped to play the tour. And 10th place in a tournament, played a paid a hundred dollars. So, so to break even, you Top had to play. You're not going to make any money, yeah. Or break. Or you're even. not going to cover your expenses. Yeah, you know, and, I think about that, yeah. Jeff, and I think you know maybe there's a parallel because the amateur game. I mean, there was a pure amateur game then, but if you compare it to the modern day co- collegiate golfer like Jordan Spieth, Jordan Spieth was playing in tour events under exemptions, and it was almost like that. I mean, he was coming in to kind of test his metal periodically to test his game to see if it was worthy for that upper level. Would you say that's a better parallel than saying, you know, he went 10 years on tour without winning, winning an event? Well, well, again, think about it. I mean, he, 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 when he won his first event, he was 27. So, so, you know, he, it, it, it took him any, you know, Sneed won his first event, you know, in the beginning of 1937. So, you know, there wasn't there wasn't that big a difference. It was, it was just that people fixate on the start date, which was very young. I mean, Byron Nelson, for example, was six months older than Hogan, but he didn't turn pro until the end of 1932, I don't think. Uh, so, you know, people don't count those years that, you know, he was playing amateur golf. Um, you know, Jimmy Demerit, for example, I believe he turned pro when he was 15. And he, and he didn't win his first event until he was 27. But, you know, people go, don't go around talking about how Jimmy took Jimmy Demerit 12 years to win on tour. So, I mean, there is an element of truth. There was 10 years, but he was spending quite a bit of that time um, uh, saving money. And, you know, this is one, this is an interesting element that Hogan decided to self-fund his, his second try on tour. And this, this actually um, contradicts one of the, um, uh, the myths or, um, you know, folklore about Hogan that Marvin Leonard uh, dipped into his deep pocket uh, to support Hogan, you know, what I've been able to document is that Marvin Leonard lent um, Ben maybe $200 or thereabouts 
for the 1931-1932 winter tour, uh, but that was it. Uh, in fact, uh, there is a notation on a uh, on what looks to be the account card for Ben Hogan that they kept at you know the, the office at Marvin Leonard's company, you know that added up the, the loans to the Hogan, and then there's a notation that says that in early February. Hogan came in to visit Marvin Leonard. Well, that was the week after Hogan had played in the Texas Open and the week before in 1932 and, and the week before he ran out of money in New Orleans. And I, I think it's, it's fair to conclude that he visited with Mr. Leonard to see if he could get additional money to continue on to Florida after New, New Orleans and he was turned down. And from then on, I can't find any instance when Hogan was out on tour and needed money. You know, the closest that, that the closest to that was in January of 1938, when you know, famously, you know, he found the car jacked up, and you know, he was. You know, they were down to their eighty-six dollars, and Henry Pickard, you know offered him help if they needed it, and then he won $285, and that was the biggest check he ever saw. You know, but th there's, there is no other instance where he was out there on tour where um, uh, I saw any indication that um, Leonard would have been called upon. And this, was, and this was sort of an interesting aspect because other players, notably Byron Nelson, you know, his father-in-law or uh, – um, sponsored him in his first couple of tries at the tour. One of the other myths that we hear a lot, Jeff, is, um, and I, I think this one is, well, I think every golfer's probably heard, and this is prior to the quote-unquote secret, which we'll dive into later, is that, and you alluded to this, Ben Hogan was a bad driver of the golf ball. Um, you know, it, it makes it sound, I think the lore uh, or the myth behind this is that the guy couldn't even hit a driver prior to the secret. So shine some light on that myth. I, and I know you hit a little bit up on, on when we were talking in the intro, but talk a little bit about that because I think there's a, a great story that's completely overlooked um, that I, I know you're going to jump into. So jump ahead. Okay. Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, I mean, Hogan, Hogan was, was first gained notoriety because of his driving. Uh, and I document some of this in the chapters of the book that are already online. That um, you know, as a teenager, he was um, reported in the in, in the, in the uh, newspaper articles that talked about the tournaments that he was in. That he was along uh, and, and considered an accurate driver. Uh, sure, he he lost some tournaments because he hit a bad drive uh, here or there, and he oh did did feel that, you know, his driving was not as reliable as he wanted. And that, I think that caused him a great deal of anxiety. Do you think, I mean, do you think that was feel versus real from what you've read? You know how, you know, I think that I'm bad at certain things, but statistically I'm actually pretty good at them. Is it really, is it some of that? Like it, you have a great quote. What's the quote you have about the hook? It was Hogan's quote. Something about fearing the hook versus. Oh well, well, this well, this is uh, this this was something that uh, Billy Harmon, 
uh, me. He, uh, his father, Claude Harmon, was close with Ben. And um, uh, what uh, Billy says, Hogan told his father, was it was the fear of the hook that uh, uh, he suffered from more than the actual hook. And you could kind of see that, you know, let's let's kind of go through it. I mean, he, he gets on tour in 37 and he, um, uh, you know, makes the makes the, the big check at um, uh, Oakland. And, and, and then he actually has a pretty good year in 38 and a better year in 39. But he wasn't able to win. And he he had some late uh, tournament or even, you know, last nine failures. And I suspect in some of those instances, he hooked the ball um, into bad spots and, and he didn't win. And, and that bothered him and that bothered the heck out of him. But if you look at the newspaper reporting, you know, it, it's not reported that, you know, event after event, he, he was hitting hooks. It, it, it's actually relatively rare. And the, um, you know, what, what turned his game around was uh, getting a driver that he didn't hook. And that happened at uh, the North-South in 1940. You know, at, you know, as I, you know, by, in 1940, he had already finished um, second uh, three times before they got to the North-South. And, you know, he was wondering, you know, am I ever going to win? Uh, he was uh, being mentioned in newspapers as the, uh, a successor to Harry Cooper as the perennial bridesmaid. Bridesmaid. I was thinking like Craig Wood, or maybe our modern day Phil Mickelson before he broke through, right? Well, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I sort of think of him a lot like Tom Watson. You know, to be honest, yeah, I think his pre-secret game was a lot like Watson. You know, long, you know, good in every department of the game, occasionally wild. You know, but there wasn't. Hogan had no weaknesses. I mean, he was an excellent putter. We'll get into that. He was an excellent short game player, you know, but he wasn't spectacular tee to green like uh, the other Texans were, like Ralph Gouldall or Byron Nelson. Uh, he wasn't considered in the same league as an iron player as Demerit and Mangrum until much later in his career. So I, I think, I think uh, Hogan you know, fretted a lot about the hook. And and he, and he goes into some detail, you know, after the, the first round at the North-South that he played with this driver. And, you know, uh, what had happened was um, both both uh, Ben and Byron were on the McGregor staff, and they were both at the North-South in, you know, March of 1940. Uh, Byron had had two drivers custom-made for him by McGregor to try them both out and one he didn't like, and he offered the one he didn't like to Hogan. And, you know, that's actually kind of a distinctive club because it was finished in all black. And even the face, you know, which is typically, um, you know, doesn't have any finish on it. You see the natural, even that was, was, was finished black. And you can kind of see, you can see that driver over the years, uh, you know, in his bag or in his hand um, with a characteristic black face. And, uh, after that first round where I think he set a course record, he said, I've never driven the ball like this. Every, every drive was on a clothesline. Uh, you know, when I, before I would have a tendency to have a little too much draw 
at the end of my drives. You know, not not a hook. I mean, not 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 a ducking hook, which is what he was describing in nineteen. You know, much later when he talked about the, the secret, that isn't what was troubling him. It was just something that would, at the wrong time, put him in a bad lie and make his approach, you know, a little more difficult uh, at a critical time. And this driver basically opened the floodgates. And uh, he he won the North-South in record fashion. Uh, he won the following week, a tournament in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he fought and he won the week after that in Asheville. And he, he went, you know, he went from the perennial bridesmaid to the hottest player on tour, uh, along with uh, Demerit. And, uh, and then it was, it was based on that play that, uh, led to the article I talked about at the beginning where, uh, his peers, Dick Metz, Harry Cooper, were raving about his ball striking. And, you know, and I, and I did more research. Uh, I found an article published later that summer where, you know, someone had done an analysis and said, yes, Ben Hogan is not only one of the longest drivers on tour, he is one of the most accurate. And uh, so he had a terrific year um, driving in 1940. And there were instances, you know, in 41, you know, maybe when there's a little too much pressure, I think when the U.S. Open was at Colonial in 41, he had a, a one or two rounds where he didn't drive it very well. Uh, I mean, it wasn't, you know, his driving wasn't perfect. It wasn't error-free, but it really wasn't until uh, that driver broke. Yeah, I mean, if from 1940 to 1947, he racks up uh, the PGA Championship in 30 wins in those years. So we think of we think of him as being you know a a poor player, or, or at least that's the myth, pre you know the secret, and he racks up thirty wins in like seven years, uh, which is remarkable for a career, let alone a seven year stretch. Yeah, it, it was yeah he he he, you know it was interesting. He in nineteen forty he won four events, leading money winner won the Varden Trophy. Nineteen forty one wins five events. Runner-up 11 times wins the Martin Trophy. 1942, it was a short season. You know, he his last event was in mid-August at Rochester. He wins six times, leading money winner. They didn't award the Varden Trophy, but he had a low stroke average. And, and, and in 40 and 42, he won the North-South, which was, I call him a quasi-major. You know, they had a lot of prestige. When he when he won them, there were there were headlines that said, you know, they were a major win. Um, I mean, I think people might argue that well, it wasn't at the same, certainly wasn't the same level as the as the U.S. Open. And then in 1942, he had the misfortune of you know winning another. You know, I think in, I think arguably a legitimate major, the Hail America Open. Which has basically been forgotten. You know, it, it, it's not it's not listed as a major win. Um, you know, he argued, and I, I yeah, think we'll it, get into that too. I, Jeff. I, I think it's one of our, our yeah, last he, talked, yeah. he argued that it was a, a, a U.S. Open, which I think is a very weak argument. But in any event, by by 1942, by the end of 1942, he was the one that was 
described as the most consistent player and the most consistent money winner on tour. And he was being called Mr. Golf. And then World War II came along. You know, he served, you know, he, he was out of the game for three years. And during that, and then during the war, um, Nelson reclaimed the Mr. Golf title. But when Hogan returned uh, full-time in the tour at the, in the end of August of uh, 45, he won five more events. So in the last, so if you take his last four months of 45, of five wins, and his first, you know, seven months or eight months of 42 with six wins, there's 11 wins in a 12-month period. And then in 1946, he had 13 wins in a 12-month period. And so, you know, that that was that that was, and, and again, you know, 1946 leading money winner and won the Garden Trophy. So he yes, he had a remarkable career. And, you know, Nelson's success, you know, in the big championships um, overshadowed that. And and still to this day, there there are folks that believe that um, Nelson had Hogan's number, but you know, that's really not true. Um, I've I've taken a close look at their records. And, you know, in matches where Hogan and Nelson were head to head, you know, I, I had six. I've uh, documented six times. Hogan won three times and Nelson won three times. Um, and uh, if you go even deeper and look at the um, performance in tournaments where they were both playing, uh, Hogan has the edge overall you know, in the 1940s and by a little bit and by a big amount after that. In the 1930s, Nelson, you know, obviously played better than Hogan. So he has a seven-year stretch, 40 to 47, where he is one of the most dominant drivers of the ball. Uh, He has this brand new driver from McGregor that he got from basically a hand-me-down from Byron Nelson, who I'm sure regretted giving that to him. He probably didn't. He was such a nice guy, right? But Essentially, he comes upon a second great break that isn't a good one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. That. You know, yeah, well, you know, it's, a, you know, dr- wooden drivers didn't last forever, even, even though Sneed's driver lasted an awfully long time. But in, uh, in January of 1947, during the, during the Pro-Am at the Phoenix Open, Hogan's driver broke. And, wait, and wait, wait, uh, do we know where Byron Nelson was when it broke? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Byron was on the ranch. Byron was on the ranch. So we we can rule him out as a suspect. He's out of the ranch. What's kind of interesting there is that, yes, the driver broke, but in the news stories, when Hogan talked about the driver, he didn't say, this is the driver Byron Nelson gave me in 1940. In fact, he claimed it was a driver that dated back to before then. And, you know, Hogan was, was not about to give credit to his uh, six years of success with that driver, to um, Byron Nelson, who he finally uh, had kind of driven off the tour, you know, in, in by in 1946, and, and 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 what was interesting was uh, Hogan couldn't find a replacement. Yeah, he managed. I think to, how he many? Managed, you told me how many drivers that you thought you well, he went through. Well, he managed. He managed to win the Phoenix Open driving with his brassy, and then he went about trying to find a, a replacement. 
and I believe uh, in, in one story uh, that he said he had tried as many as 31. Yeah. And for the, young, for the young golfers out here, this isn't mass produced down to the millimeter equipment, right? I mean, it is everything from the shaft, even in the early day, days of steel, uh, for getting the right feel, the right kick, the right balance, the head weight, the the weighting, it was not as precise as what we think of our driver today, where we have three drivers and Tiger can probably win with either three of the three. Well, you know, you, with the, you know the, with the question is, well, what was it about that driver yeah. that worked so well? And the answer is, we don't know. Which, you know, is, I, which fact, is tragic, right? And I actually recall reading, but, you know, I can't, I couldn't put my, my finger on the document that it even had a shut face. But in, in any case, he uh, he struggled, and um, and the rest of the and, and his peers loved it. By the way, <laughs> of course, why would there, there was a um, an article that appeared about mid year, and you know it was about a conversation in the locker room amongst the pros, and Hogan is going on about how he can't find a replacement driver, and Kerry Middlecoff is there saying, "Well, that's that's just a shame, Ben. <laughs> we really." We really feel for you that you can't find that driver. And, you know, I've looked a little bit at his record and, you know, he, he won. He, he certainly wasn't winning at the 46 clip. He he won, um, I believe, for the year total. He won seven times, but two of those were team events. And but where he didn't play well was in the uh, the majors. And he and he seemed to be plagued by a round of 75 uh, in, in each of the, in, in each of the major, you look at them is in the masters and in the U S open, uh, you know, some 75s, Western open 74, 75 in the PGA, he lost in the first round. So overall his, and, and, and he, he was still, you know, amongst the money leaders um, in the top three, but, uh, another thing that happened that I think is significant is Bobby Locke arrived on tour and, and Locke, you know, was, you know, a complete unknown when he arrived. And I believe in something like 14 starts, he won six times and he, he was the dominant player. And um, it, although he and Jimmy Demerit battled for the money title and for the uh, scoring average, um, you know, Demerit played played in far more tournaments. So um, uh, Locke's, Locke's um, winning percentage was much higher. And and I th- I think I think the combination of not being able to find the new driver, not being number one, you know, for the first time, you know, the first full season, you know, since 1940, every full season up until that time, Hogan had been number one and he was knocked off that perch. You know, I think that really weighed on him. And um, he, he, he he solved the problem by deciding, you know, I'll have to figure out a different way uh, to hit the golf ball. Do you think we, we have this swing change if the driver never breaks? I mean, I'm, I know it's speculation, but he seems to be doing great with that driver. I don't see any reason to, to suspect it would have happened. He, you know, he what? He he won thirteen times in forty six. 
And then he goes through 31 drivers, basically, of what we know, trying to find a replacement that does the same thing, and he just can't find it. He so, can't find it. So he decides he needs to make a change. Is that fair? Right. Yeah, yeah, right. He does. And, 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 so, and so here we come to the secret. And, well, hold on. You know, before you go there, because I have to say this part. This is one of my – so, you know, we, we caught up last week, right? And we mentioned that we we're going to talk about uh, we, the secret and then the quote-unquote small case S secrets. Before we dive into both of them, I just want to let you know, I've been following my Twitter and Facebook feeds, and it seems like everyone knows Hogan's secret. However, <laughs> nobody can agree with what it is. <laughs> okay. Well, so, 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 so in any event, let's, let's just, we'll just finish, finish this part of the story and, and, and then, and it's, and it, then it, it will lead right in, you know, um, Hogan, uh, decided uh, to leave the tour and he, and he talks about this in, in the Venturi interview and he you know, talks about it in the Life magazine articles and except the year is wrong. We'll get into that in a second and uh, goes to Fort Worth and he w- with the mission of finding a way to uh, rid himself of the hook and uh, he, uh, he he's successful and you know uh, people might wonder, you know, is, is is did that really happen, or is that a tall tale? But we have we ha- it's thoroughly documented, you know, it's thoroughly documented. He um, and, and this and this sort of takes us right to the secret versus Hogan's secrets, or you know, he, what was Hogan's secret for success as opposed to what was the secret. And, and that's something that needs to be kind of separated when we talk about Hogan. There, there is, you know, for example, you know, uh, there, you know, Peter Kessler was friends with Tommy Bolt. And Tommy Bolt says, Ben Hogan told all oh, there is no secret. There is no secret. I was just, uh, I was just uh, fibbing when I, when I talked to Life magazine. Well, well, we know that's not true. I mean, because what we have in, you know, documented in interviews and in articles in the newspaper, in Hogan's own newspaper column, is, you know, a very detailed retelling of what we, he went through. And in, um, so what he went through is exactly what he said in the, um, the later interviews. He, he went to Fort Worth. You know, he looked for, he, he tried out different ideas and he found one that worked and he proved that it worked by winning, you know, his next start at the um, uh, at George May tournament. And then we know from um, Joe Novak's book, Joe Novak was the president of the PGA, that when he was at the Ryder Cup in November of 1947, Hogan came up to him and said, I finally learned how to play golf. And, you know, and Novak said, wow, that was, that's quite a confession from, you know, this, uh, you know, absolute star, you know, who's won all these tournaments over the years to say, I finally learned how to play golf. And what he, what Hogan told Novak was that he had decided to adopt a fade. And then, you know, the next piece of, you know, documentary evidence is there's an Associated Press article that appears uh, the day after Christmas on, um, you know, uh, December 26, 
and in it, uh, Hogan says, um, you know, I made a change. I, I found that playing a draw was too taxing. Uh, I, I found that as I got tired, it was more and more difficult to control. And uh, I've decided that and implemented a swing change that produces a fade. And I used that swing change when I won George May's tournament in Chicago in September. And, you know, although I didn't have, you know, although I did, I did not have a great year by my standards in 1947, I don't think my career is, you know, on the decline. In fact, I expect 1948 to be my best year ever. You know, and this is, this is, you know, this is Hogan saying, you know, before 1948 has even started, that this is going to be my best year ever. And it was. <laughs> so he knew what he was talking about. And so, and then the thing is, you know, Hogan's secret wasn't a secret until it became a secret. Because at that time, he wrote a he wrote newspaper columns that appeared a couple times a week, and in the February seventeenth, nineteen forty eight newspaper column, he takes he takes his readers through everything. He tells them you know why he decided to make the change. You know he was finding it more difficult to control the hick, hook, and presumably that was because he'd lost his hook proof driver. Uh, he uh, explained what it was about his swing that caused him to hook. He said that he'd always had the tendency to shut the face of the club slightly at the top of the backswing. And so to counteract that tendency, he did the opposite. He weakened his grip and he opened the club face in the backswing. And, you know, that's... Um, that's right there. That's right there in this you article. Folks, you folks just heard the secret. And and that well, there, there's more to it yeah, than no, that. I know, I know. I'm just teasing. It goes into a little more detail in the in the life article, but yeah. that's the gist of it. And then he says, from now on, when I hit a ball, it drifts a little bit from left to right, unless I'm going uh, all out for distance. And, and, he, and he even he says here, and, and other people have observed, including Sneed and others, that when he went all out, the ball still went straight or had a little bit of a hook. But his bread and butter drive was going to be a fade. And Saracen goes into this uh, in some detail in his book that was published in 1950, that when Hogan got tired and wasn't swinging well, instead of hooking, the fade just got bigger. And that was prob and that was probably the biggest benefit for Hogan was that when he when his game started to go sour, instead of starting to hook into trouble, he just started to hit a little bit bigger fade. And there's so there's some evidence there of some of his counterparts watching him in the early days, and they don't they're not calling it a fade, are they? Oh really? Oh, oh well, <laughs> well, okay, that's a good point. That's a good point. Well, and I'll get to that in a second. Yeah, absolutely. But, but so, so here we are, where he's told everybody everything. You know, so how, so how does this, you know, where he's public, where he's where he's published, you know, in his column, you know, published nationwide, you know, what exactly he's done? How does that become a secret? Well, because people forgot he told them. 
And then and, and, and later that spring, you know, in the sp- later that year in the spring, Power Golf is published. And Power Golf had been written during 1947 and was in the process of being the pictures were taken, you know, in, in early 1947. And in the book, there was no discussion of these swing changes. And well, I don't know, and I don't know that anyone today knows what sort of you know, thought process Hogan had, but when the book was published, all of a sudden, these swing changes that he talked about so freely in February became a secret that's so important, I won't even tell my wife. And the secret, and that's when the secret was born. He, you know, from that point until the August 4th, 1955 issue of Life magazine, he did not discuss the particulars of the swing changes. And spoiler alert, in, in, the, April, in the August 4th, 1955 Life magazine article, the two big, two of the biggest elements of the swing change were I weakened my grip and I opened the club face going back. So, you know, that's those are the, those are to the two bookends yeah. of the secret. Do you do you think he enjoyed sending people down the rabbit hole in that in that middle ground? Uh, I, oh, I, I definitely think he did. I, I definitely think he did. You know, in fact, there was uh, one comment. You know, in 1954, uh, as I mentioned, there was the uh, Life magazine article where the pros were guessing at the secret. And, and one of the uh, more candid pros said, well, you know, Ben Hogan slings more bull out here than anybody. And and and, and Sam Snead, you yeah, know. Sam Snead never like, liked answering those. Like every quote I've well, seen about him talking well, about it's just like, oh, well, you know. Well, was, well, was Sam was a clever guy. And he said, well, anyone can have a secret if he doesn't tell you what it is. Right. But, uh, uh, but. I think he, well, I, I do think he, um, and, and there's evidence, uh, there's actually evidence later on because in, 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 in around the U.S. Open around June, which is played at uh, 48, that was played at Riviera, the L.A. Times had a two-part um, profile of Hogan. And uh, in that article, he talks about the fade, and he says basically the same thing here. He says, you know, the hook was just becoming too draining, so I fixed switched to a fade. You know, that was like on June 7th. A week later, uh, another article in the LA Times, but bylined by a different reporter, he says, oh, you know, people say I'm hitting a fade. I'm not hitting a fade. I'm just hitting it higher. <laughs> so, so, our, so already he was starting to, you know, uh, spread some disinformation on that. Yeah. I just I I find it fascinating because even today, every decade there's a couple books coming out that are going to reveal Ben Hogan's secret. Well, yeah. Well, you know, all you have to do is you know I see you know, people ask me, well, how you find this stuff? Well, I mean, it's the equivalent of the dirt. I mean, I just go into newspaper archives, magazine archives, and you know I look, and you never know what you're going to find. I mean, it, you know. Sort of, uh, I, I was looking at um, so you know so after obviously there was interest in the secret that was you know initiated in 1948, and as you alluded to, you know his swing it wasn't that pretty you know it wasn't that you know you know the the, the Hogan power fade you know has been sort of enshrined 
but you know he wasn't that great a driver in 1948. In fact, I looked up his driving stats to the extent that I could find them at the PGA Championship in the final. He um, one of the local newspapers, St. Louis newspapers, um, published uh, you know hole by hole summaries. And, and, and they, they didn't have every hole, but they had um, enough information that they, they, they detailed what happened on 17 driver swings in that final. And, on, and, and on those, on, out of 17 driver swings, 10 of them missed the fairway. Two of them went out of bounds. One of them went into an adjacent fairway, and one of them went into the rough, in the rough on another hole. And another one wound up behind a tree. So in 1948, you know, even with, you know, the secret, he was not the, you know, the, the machine-like driving, uh, you know, automaton that he became, you know, he became known for later, and, 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 and which, which he definitely was. And, um, you know, there, were, there was a transition period where, you know, another great story by Billy Harmon, he says that, his father, Claude, was out on the driving range, and Hogan is there, and Hogan is hitting these big slices. Oh, I can't, you can't even imagine that, right? Like, shut your eyes, and you cannot see that. Hogan hitting, like, 10, 20-yard slices. And Claude says, what the heck are you doing? And I believe Hogan's reply was something, you know, Claude, I'm going to get so good at slicing the ball that I'll never hit another hook. And, you know, Kerry Middlecoff, you know, was, um, you know, came on tour right about that time. He, he won the 1949 uh, U.S. Open, and he actually played. He actually played, I believe, the final two rounds of the U.S. Open with Hogan. So he saw him up close and personal. And uh, in, in, in one of Middlecoff's books, you know, he wrote that in 1948, you know, Hogan pretty much faded everything. You know, but after that, he um, didn't rely on on the fade to the same extent, and and we can and we can document that. But but later, there was a um, very significant uh, cover story for Golf Digest in March of 1982, and they looked at um, uh, the, the swings of you know three greats, uh, Ben Hogan, Jack Nicklaus, and Tom Watson, and in there. In that in that article, Middlecoff is a lot more blunt. He says, um, in 1948, Hogan was the worst-looking banana ball slicer you ever saw that summer. But he kept it in play and made everybody he looked at. He won the U.S. Open and the PGA that year and seemed to have the world by the tail. You know, it's not too different than I, I, we talked about this last week. That you know, the great instructors would say, "Listen, if you don't like your ball flight, try to hit the opposite." You know, ingrain the opposite, and you'll find something in the middle. And, and what does that remind you of? You know, uh, one of one of Hogan's, um, you know, uh, legendary quotes quotes is: "There's nothing natural about the golf swing." You know, if you want to have a good golf swing, take every natural instinct and reverse it. And I think, and I think that's a large part of what he was doing. You know, without delving into the technical details of the secret, as I said, I think there was more to it than simply weakening the grip and cupping the left wrist. I think a lot of it had to do with how he swung in the downswing. I think with the 
pre-secret days when he had the hook-proof driver, I think he did a lot of left-side pulling. You know, there would be there would be articles where, say, a Grantland Rice would describe having seen Hogan beat balls for hours and then look at his left hand and how how much abuse his left hand was had taken. And and I think I think Hogan's did spend a lot of time, you know, in those pre-secret years trying to fight the hook with the left side. But what did he say after the secret? He said he wanted three right hands. And he also said in the 1955 Life article that he tried to close the face from the top of the swing. So he no longer tried to keep it open. He tried to close it. And, you know, you know, if you want to get into the details, that's something Jim Hardy <laughs> can help you with. He and I have talked about this a lot and, you know, understand sort of the changes in technique that, you know, that relate to that. But, yeah, you hear, I think you hear a lot of Hogan's own, you know, trials and tribulations when he speaks about, when he speaks about, you know, reverse every natural instinct. And I think... Um, I think the other thing that, you know, we, you and I've talked about is, you know, he, when he did, you know, he, you know, he didn't, he wasn't swinging easy. I mean, he was still swinging hard and what, what the secret allowed him to do was swing hard and not fear the hook. And, you know, as I, and, and as he said, you know, in the very first article, the ball would fade except when I went at it full bore. And if you you recall that in five lessons, you know he he makes the statement that you know a good golfer should not fear strength. You know a good golfer would like to have the strength of a giant. A, a good golfer would then be hitting back to the par fours, and that a, if you have a properly functioning golf swing, should hit the ball straighter, the longer the harder you swing at it. And I think all those the, all those conclusions, I think, um, you know, are basically uh, things that he learned going through this process uh, where he um, uh, changed, you know, fundamentally changed how he uh, released the club. You know, Jeff, there was something you brought up when we talked last week, and it was something I don't think I'd heard before. I'd call it a smaller S secret, right? One of the secrets. Uh, you shared it with me last week that I wasn't aware of, and it was really about how he changed his approach uh, post-1947 on course management. You know, I, I, like his insight on how to play uh, the 18 holes and how not, maybe specifically how not to play certain holes was fascinating. Could you jump into how that changed and what that was? Because everyone listening could use this. Well, that kind of goes back to... You know, Mark, Mike Sherman is a guy I got to know, a professional from Canada. And when we were talking about, um, I think I posted the Joe Novak quote where Hogan said, I finally learned how to play golf. And Mike asked a great question. He said, well, what did he mean by I finally learned how to play golf? Because, you know, you can learn in learning. You know, playing golf isn't just swing mechanics. And, and, and I think I think there was another part of the secret. There was what, there was the part of you know finding swing mechanics that would eliminate the worry of hitting a hook, and and that's what he that was he was was successful finding with these swing changes. 
but Chris Shetter, uh, in, in, in her book, uh, Mr. Hogan, the man I knew that was co-authored with Steve Eubanks, the wonderful writer. Um, she asked him, um, if he had a secret and, you know, I think Hogan was pretty forthright and honest with her. And he, she said, he, he answered right away. And he said, well, you know, if I had a secret, when I started to win big tournaments, I decided that I should not attack with the driver on every hole. Uh, I made a decision that on the three or four holes on a course where a bad drive could get me in trouble where I might make double bogey or worse, I would be better off hitting long irons. And I discovered that you know, I would make a lot of pars, you know, hitting long irons. I would, I didn't make as many bogeys as I thought I might make. And I made some birdies. And, you know, once I made that strategic change is when I started to win the big events. And I think he learned, you know, I think Bobby Locke was a big influence on him there because, because, because Bobby Locke, could hit it long, but he but he's always he tended to swing within himself, and he tended to also tee off with a fairway wood, and you know he but but he shows up, you know sort of you know doing fairways and greens, you know sort of a, a the 1947 version of Billy Casper, you know not hitting it out there far, but you know not getting into trouble, and you know and he basically ate their lunch. No, he, uh, he, 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 they, they hadn't seen anything like that. And, you know, fortunately for them, he actually kind of slowed down in 48. And then, you know, there are other issues and he didn't play over here that much. But in 47, he was a real force. And I think one of the tournaments where Hogan faltered in 47 was a tournament in Philadelphia. He um, had a five shot lead over Locke uh, before the final day, and they played a 36-hole final that day, and it was it was an awful, you know, rainy, stormy day, you know, so wet conditions, and you would have thought that the more powerful player, Hogan, would have an advantage. Well, just the opposite, you know, in the course of that day, Bobby Locke made up 10 strokes and, and won by five, you know, and beat Hogan by five shots, and I think it was experiences like that which... And then, and, and then in interviews, I mean, you know, when, when Locke talked about Hogan, Locke would say, well, I think he swings too hard too often. And, you know, I can't prove this. You know, I don't have, you know, a, a transcript or an interview where Hogan acknowledges this. But, you know, kind of just connecting the dots, you know, I think, I think Hogan, you know, the, 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 when he said he learned how to play golf, he was speaking about both. He was speaking about the mechanical change, you know, to eliminate the worry of a hook, plus the driving strategy change that, you know, um, you know, the, the, the risk of making a double or worse uh, isn't worth the upside of attacking every hole with the driver. And um, and I think I so I think the 1948 Hogan was the Hogan for the rest of his career. I mean, people people will people delineate between the accident, you know, before the accident and after the accident, but I don't think that's quite right. I mean, the, the fade was in place, 
you know, in 1948. And I think this change in strategy was in place in 1948. And then after the accident, he just refined it. And the thing about Hogan was he never stopped working. Uh, and and, and um, he, he always sought to improve. And he actually spoke about that at length in a uh, very interesting interview everyone should look at who is a Hogan fan. Uh, an article published in September 1949 titled, I'll Be Back. And there had been a lot of rumors, you know, uh, around the tour in the summer and early fall of 1949 that Hogan wouldn't come back, that the injuries would keep him out of professional golf. And this this article written by Dallas, written with a Dallas uh, reporter named Bill uh, Rives or Reeves, um, know, goes on about that. And, and, and in that article, Hogan says, you know, I discovered how to play golf when I was 35, you know, alluding to the secret. And that's, and that's considered old for a golfer, but I don't see any reason why a golfer should, skill should necessarily decline with age. You know, I believe that, you know, golfers, when they hit 40, just decide not to work as hard. You know, they decide they'd rather sit in the clubhouse and not go out and work. But I, I'm never going to lose that. And I think that was true. I think Hogan, you know, continued to um, work on his game. And, you know, uh, you know uh, people who are close to him, like Gardner Dickinson, will say he thought that Hogan's ball striking was at its best when Hogan was in his mid-50s. That, 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 he, that, he, that he never, you know, slacked off and lost uh, his ball striking skills. And, you know, and, 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 and there's, um, I, I just was looking before we got on the, uh, the podcast, an article from 1959 where Jimmy DeMerit is saying, I, I think Hogan's hitting it better than ever. You know, he, uh, he'd actually abandoned the fade at that point because the fade was giving, was costing him too much diff- distance and had gone back to a draw. And people who saw Hogan you know, in the 60s, they'll tell you, uh, I went to watch Hogan and I didn't see him hit any fades off the tee. Um, and, uh, but his, you know, his, but they also said his iron play, his long iron play was, you know, no, no one else hit long irons like Hogan. I think that's my takeaway from, you know, the, the myth of the secret is, perhaps the secret is whatever works for you that you want to take from Hogan. But for me, Everyone's talking about the swing changes, but it's really the difference maker, the how not to lose a tournament is the strategy of how to play the game, how to how to understand the game and take out right. the, big, well, the big hole. Well, you know, OK, and, and that's and, and, we, and we've talked about. So we've talked about this one thing, you know, the secret defined term I mean, that is. That was something that has a you know we can we can identify it at the beginning you know when it actually was discovered we can document it and and when it was revealed in 1955 he told us what it was but was that everything well no of course not there were there were you know many other things that made him the golfer he he was and I think one of them was you know he was willing to do whatever it took. He would would not leave anything that he would not leave anything to chance. And and one of the things that he did where he was way out in front of everybody was studying the courses. He would um, he would commit to memory 
every detail of every hole of every course that he played. So he created in his mind a complete yardage book. And that was essential if you wanted to play your best in those days because there were no yardage books and there were no tour caddies. So you had to rely on local caddies who were for the most part bag toters. And so to give you so so to kind of the, the three these the three greats of that era, Sneed, Hogan, and Nelson, sort of illustrate, you know, they sort of personify, you know, in sort of the three different approaches. Nelson was known to be gifted at pulling a club and did not to, to my knowledge, chart courses. But he was also known for being able to pick the right club and hit the ball whole high virtually every time. Hogan, we really don't know how good he was at, at playing by sight because he, he didn't do it that way. He, 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 played enough, he, he played enough drives and practice rounds to different parts of the fairway and would hit enough approaches to where he thought the flags would be during the tournament that you know, he didn't have to guess. He knew what to hit. And then we have Sam, who um, you know tried to play it Nelson's way, but didn't have the skill. And you know those guys, they didn't pull any punches in those days. And you know you can find articles where you know uh, his his peers are being you know very blunt that he uh, relied too much on his caddy, that uh, they would. That, that they felt that he would only do as well in the tournament as his caddy clubbed him. Uh, you know, Al Barco spends six pages of his biography of Sneed discussing this, and then he ends that section where uh, it had gotten to the point on tour where Jack had shown up, Jack Nicholas, and Jack had, was, was, was famous for, for charting the courses and writing down notes on scorecards. And Jackie Burke reveals that in the Masters in the early 1960s, <laughs> there's Sam <laughs> making notes. And you know, Jackie says, oh, you know, something like, you know, it's about time that you did this. And, and Sam, you know, the thing, you got to love Sam. I mean, Sam, he, I mean, he, he admitted it. You know, you, you can find interviews where he says, you know, I, I, lost, I lost tournaments because I... Uh, did not, I did not know how to club myself. And yeah, it's um, interesting out of the three that he would probably benefit the most from the modern day tour professional caddy. Well, right, and you know, and well, well, Hogan, Hogan like needling, I think both Nelson and Snead, and 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 there was there's a um, a wonderful you know program that you can find on YouTube where the interviewer is this guy named Father Keller. And, and Hogan talks about how he felt that the golf tournament golf is 30% a golf swing and 70% management. And, you know, Hogan said, you know, there are fellows on, I mean, I don't have the best swing and there's fellows on tour with swings that are much better than mine, meaning you, Sam. And, but they haven't trained themselves and how to manage their game for four rounds, and um, although I can't, I, although I can't find it in print, I've heard it attributed to Hogan that he felt that if he caddied for, um, you know, a tournament winner, 
he would have imp- he would improve their score, you know, by six shots a tournament or something like that. Well, I think a lot of those six shots would come from, you know, simply knowing the yardages. And, and, and so, so if you look at the game today versus the game in those days, and if you want to compare scoring across eras, I think you need to take into consideration that today's players have a big advantage with the, um, you know, very well done uh, yardage books and, you know, and the very, you know, professional and experienced uh, tour caddies. Let's let's jump into another myth. Let's go into the bus accident. Uh, the the bus accident occurs on February second, nineteen forty nine, and there are several myths that are widely circulated with that accident. One that Hogan would never walk again, and another that the accident nearly killed him. Can you walk us through what history tells us about the accident, specifically the written record of those events? What was the prognos- prognosis and the complications that followed? Okay. Well, you know, the, the, the accident was a horrible thing. And, you know, what, what happened with those who aren't familiar with it, they were driving on a highway, it was foggy, and they, you know, they had the misfortune of being on a roadway where there were guardrails, a guardrail to the right. And uh, they were on a two-lane road and a Greyhound bus decided to pass a, you know, a big truck. And, uh Hogan had nowhere to, to move. He, he got as far to the right as he could, uh, but couldn't get off the road and avoid the bus. And the bus clipped, you know, the driver's side of the car. Hogan's instinctively threw himself to the right, you know, and fortunately the bus only hit the driver's side of the car. You know, if, if it had been a head-on collision, which you often hear it characterized, Hogan and Valerie would have died instantly. You know, there's no way a human being in a car is going to survive being hit head on by a bus. Especially but back it, then it, without the safety features, right? Oh, these yeah, cars. there's no seat belts. And, yeah. and in, in the case of in Hogan's case, both the, steer, the steering wheel went through the seat, the driver's seat, and the engine went into the driver's, uh, the driver's side of the passenger car compartment. And so, and, and, then, the, and, then, the, and the, then the car was pushed off the road down into the culvert. Um, now, various stories are, you know, Valerie thought he was dead or, or he was unconscious or somebody thought he was dead. Well, the, the, the firsthand account that's in Martin Davis's book, uh, Ben Hogan, The Man Behind the Mystique, has Valerie saying as she was awakening, she could hear Ben saying, get out, get out. Ben was concerned that the car was on fire. So they, they both regained consciousness about the same time. And they got him out of the car. There was a nurse. They got him into her car. And, you know, you know she, she, she said he'll be okay, you know, for whatever that's worth. They, there's some delay getting the, the ambulance, but eventually they get to the hospital in El Paso. And um, he's in shock, uh, but the initial, you know, the initial reaction is sort of the same as the nurses. I mean, he's, you know, he's in serious condition, but we think he'll be fine. Uh, the following day, the headline that comes out of the hospital is 
Uh, Hogan was badly injured in, in the accident. Uh, he um, had a fractured collarbone. He had a fractured left ankle. He, um, his pelvis was broken in two places. He had, he suffered a bad, you know, blow to the head with a gash above his left eye. And we're concerned that he might have a broken back, but we won't know until we take um, x-rays. But he should be able to return to golf. We don't know when. Same article. It does say that. Yeah. I've seen the same article. And and, and then at the end of the article, it quotes Ben saying, "I'm, I'm glad to hear that I'll be able to play golf again. And, you know, and that basically was the message, you know, for the next two weeks. Hogan was in excellent physical shape. You know, these these injuries are not career threatening. And, you know, given enough time, he'll come back. Just don't expect him to be back, you know, anytime soon. Um, You know, absolutely nothing about not being able to walk again because, you know, the, 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 he had two fractures of the pelvis, but that was characterized as not serious, and he had a broken ankle. I mean, those were the injuries to his lower body. You know, th- those shouldn't impair your ability to walk. So, so that that really wasn't that was that was nowhere on the radar. Now, what happened was the doctors in Impasco did a very foolish thing to treat Hogan's broken pelvis. They put him in a hard plaster cast that went from about, you know, mid-chest down to his thighs. And, you know, part of the injuries that Hogan had in the accident were, you know, bad contusions all around his left hip area. And contusions are deep bruises. And by putting him in the hard plaster cast, they immobilized him. And they immobilized him with pressure on this area that with deep bruises. So uh, within a couple of weeks, he was really on the eve of being discharged from the hospital. Blood clots started to form. And the blood clots were extremely painful as they're passing through the veins and, you know, in his legs. and, And that caused a lot of suffering. And then worse, clots started to travel towards his lung and his heart, where they could have been fatal. And, you know, they... I guess treatment with blood thinners wasn't, you know, as effective in those days, but Hogan went through a couple bouts of blood clots. And I guess in the second week of, of this, they decided that, you know, they better get a surgeon in here to address the blood clots or he could very well die. And um, the best man to do that was a doctor in New Orleans named Alton Ochsner. And he was flown in, and he, uh, you know, it was very crude but effective treatment was to tie off the vena cava, which is the the main vein that carries blood back to the upper body. And sort of the the obvious implications of that is blood could not flow freely out of the lower body. So to the extent that there was any exertion of the lower body, a drawing blood down into the, the legs, it couldn't get out. It couldn't get out quickly, so the legs would swell. So that is where the concern came that Hogan might have difficulty walking. Um, there was, you know, 
His legs were not battered. His legs were not crushed. You know, his 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 legs was not his his legs were not lacerated. You know, muscles weren't torn, tendons weren't damaged. He had a broken ankle, but the circulation problem would rob the aerobic muscles. You know, the the, the muscles that he used to walk, and would cause his legs to swell. And the concern was he would not be able to walk eighteen holes. And if you couldn't walk 18 holes, it was assumed you wouldn't be able to play tournament golf. And, and the doctor who had, you know, the most concern in this regard was reported to be Hogan's family doctor, a guy named Howard Ditto. Howard Ditto was the brother of uh, Royal Hogan's wife. And Royal Hogan was Ben's older brother. Now, Auctioner was always cautiously optimistic. You know, the day of the operation, he predicted a full recovery. And so, you know, you had this sort of these competing views. You have Auctioner saying, I think he's going to recover. And then you have Ditto saying, well, I'm not so sure. And, you know, Auctioner was proven right uh, when Hogan recovered in at, at the LA Open. But the idea that he wouldn't walk again, I mean, I mean that, if, if someone predicted he would never walk again, it was the worst prognosis in medical history because Hogan was walking, you know, the day he left the hospital. You know, they put him on the train from El Paso to Fort Worth on a stretcher, but then he got off the stretcher and he walked the length of the Pullman car. And he was walking laps in the living room and then walking around the block and then walking to Colonial and back. So he didn't have any trouble walking. It was just... How long could he walk before his, his the circulation caused his legs to tire and or tire to the point of cramping? And really, the only cure for that was walking. And so that's what Hogan did. Yeah, I think you, when we talked, you said there might have been some tie-in to the the idea of Hogan will never walk again. Years later, uh, when the movie Follow the Sun was about to well, track down well, some reference to Hogan not walking uh, being related to that. Well, movie. okay. Well, well, it wasn't actually years later, but that, that's a very, that's a very, that's something that I, I have spent a lot of time trying to research. Cause I, I've been trying to, to, I've been trying to get to the bottom of where the never walk again, you know, theme came from because, you know, I, 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 I like to look at the newspaper archives. I, I've served, I've thoroughly searched newspapers.com and I've also thoroughly searched all the articles written uh, out of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram that monitoring the recovery. And the words, you know, walk again, as in never walk again or might never walk again, those never appear. No Texas newspaper in all of 1949 ever mentions anything about concerns that Hogan might not walk again. The very first mention I can find was from a uh, Arizona newspaper, and it appeared in July, months after Hogan was walking, and it was a story where the main topic was the Hogans were in Los Angeles, and although Hogan, the Hogans were saying it was a just a vacation to Los Angeles, he was actually meeting with people in the movie business, and they were talking about doing the movie of his life. And in that article, the, the writer mentions, and oh, by the way, doctor said, 
Hogan would never walk again. And then there's no mention of that again until Hogan shows up in L.A. And then then the newspapers in L.A. start including in all the write-ups, well, you know, doctors said Hogan may never walk again. And one, I think, very interesting little tidbit is, you know, uh, Hogan got to um, L.A., I, I think, at the very end of December and I think his first practice round at Riviera was December 30th or December 31. And he played in the threesome. And uh, his playing partners were George Fazio and the man who would direct the movie, Follow the Sun. A movie director. I think his name was Stanley Landfield. So, you know, as, 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 I've, I've, as, as I've said, you know, these, um, you know, the... Um, sentiment that he might never walk again and would certainly never play golf again sounds like it's right out of Hollywood. Yeah. And, and, and it might be the case, right? Well, I found a little more, some more evidence, you know, the, um, the, the fellow who wrote the script for follow the sun also wrote a condensed, you know, version of it, I guess for reader's digest. And I got the copy of Reader's Digest, and right in there is the doctors told Hogan he, he, he might never walk again and would certainly never play golf again. But uh, that was something um, that was something that was never reported. And, and now, if you Google Hogan never walk again, you'll get hundreds of thousands of hits. Yeah, with it absolutely. Stated as fact that doctors told Hogan he would never walk again, but. And, and usually uh, they're saying these things as, as regard to the bus accident, not the blood clots, which is the big confusion. Out well, that, well yeah, right, right. I mean, it was yeah, right. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, for example, Hogan had to wear either elastic. At first, he wore elastic hose, you know, pantyhose uh, to um, uh, apply pressure to the legs to help force blood out through the smaller capillaries and and and, and the smaller veins, you know, and that's that's basically what had to happen. Over time, uh, the smaller blood vessels had to take on uh, the role of the of the one large vena cava, and that and in that in that the constant exercise of forcing the blood through uh, would cause the body to do that. So so Hogan would wear you know very tight pantyhose. Well, then he also wrapped his legs in elastic bandages. Well, well, sure enough, people say, oh, you know, he wrapped his battered legs in bandages. And and you can envision like blood seeping through <laughs> the bandages as he as he limps around Riviera. Well, again, nothing, nothing can be further than the truth. I mean, the, the, the injury from the auto accident that caused him the most trouble was the broken collarbone, the bone called the clavicle. I mean, if you just kind of put your hand on that bone, you see that kind of spans kind of an open space and it, it broke where it wasn't really being held in place to knit together properly. And, and, and that injury was the slowest to heal. You know, Hogan was up and walking around and putting and, you know, kind of raring the go to hit golf balls by summertime, by July. But he went to see Auctioner in, in New Orleans, and he said, no, you got to spend another three months to let this shoulder heal. And so he did. And, and, and this, 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 this timeline is truly amazing. I don't, I don't think people appreciate it. They, 
people think about it took Hogan 11 months or 10 months or whatever to get his game back. Well, that's not true at all. He, his first, and this is widely documented, that he took his first full swings in mid-November of 1949. And then played his first rounds of golf, played two rounds of golf in the weekend of December 11th or December 12th at Colonial, and he shot around par. So that's four weeks, three, four weeks between taking a full golf swing and, and shooting around par. And one of his playing partners, a pro named Ray Gafford, said to Hogan, you know, have you given any thought to entering the L.A. Open? And Ben said, no, I haven't. He said, well, you might think about that. And that got Ben's wheels turning. He said, you know, you know, I just might do that. And so a couple of weeks later, he's out in L.A. playing practice rounds. And I think his first practice round was a 69, 200 par. And his first four practice rounds were one under par. Well, even par won the tournament the prior year. You know, and this is, and this is the first week in January. So it hasn't even been eight weeks you know, since he started to take full swings. So, you know, it's, and, and that actually addresses two myths. I mean, one myth is it took him months and months to refine his game. Well, it really didn't. He got it back in a couple of months. And second, that after the accident, he rebuilt his game. Well, how could you possibly rebuild your game in such a short period of time? I mean, to the contrary, Hogan is saying in these interviews, he was stunned by how quickly his game was coming back. And, and, and losing his game, losing his edge, was actually his biggest fear that he expressed during the recovery. You know, he was concerned about that he might have to change his swing because of shoulder injury. And obviously, if the left ankle didn't heal properly, the weight transfer would have been an issue. But his big concern was he wouldn't recapture, you know, that edge, you know, to 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 complete to compete uh, with with the high degree of concentration that he needed, and you know, by the end of his practice, I think he played five or six practice rounds and was three or four under par for 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 that, you know, for for all of them. Um, he lots of people were considering him the favorite. His first tournament back, they're saying, you know, Hogan owns Riviera and, you know, maybe his drives aren't going as far as they used to, but it's still Ben Hogan. And uh, they, they, were all, they were almost right. I mean, in order to catch Hogan, Sneed sunk, a, you know, lengthy putts on the 71st and 72nd hole. So, I mean, that's, that's low probability. And, you know, the, uh, what's the probability of sinking long birdie putts in the last two holes? I mean, one one out of 20? I, I don't know. Yeah. So he, he was that especially, close. Especially by Sam Sneed. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's an underrated player. No, and he wasn't just, so bad. I'm talking about later in his career. I know. I'm just teasing. Oh, well, oh, oh, well, you know, with, with Sneed, it was more his problem with short putts. Yeah. But, he, but right. So, so any, anyhow. Um, let me, let me ask you this. Back very quickly. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So before we, I've got three more, uh, shorter version ones to go through, but, um, do you think, did Ben Hogan feel cheated by the accident? Is that fair? Like looking back on his career, did he, he think, I mean, he lost, I mean, he lost almost a year, right. In majors or he lost a, a year in majors. Did he feel like it cost him more than that? 
Oh, I think very much so. Um, and again, alluding to that, um, you know, really one of the, I think one of the more illuminating pieces is um, uh, the one that Dave Anderson wrote with, um, you know, Valerie Hogan that appears in the, in the Martin Davis book, you know, Ben Hogan, The Man Behind the Mystique. And, and she says that um, as he got older, uh, I think he definitely felt cheated. Uh, I, I've tried to look into this to the extent I can. And um, if you, um, there, you know, Tom Harmon, the, the former football player, he had a, uh, he, he did, a, I guess, a, he did some a series of documentaries about sports figures and then very, did a very nice one about Hogan that was um, uh, produced in 1966. And he interviews Hogan. And, you know, he asked Hogan, you know, how he kind of felt about his career. And I got to tell you, Hogan doesn't look real happy. I mean, he looks, he looks reflective. Uh, he, he says, hmm, and I, I wish I had it. So I, I made sure I got it verbatim. I'm just doing it from memory. But it was, you know, I basically, I, I wish I had accomplished more. And he says, I wish I had won. And he says, I wish I had won. Uh, I had one more tournaments. And um, I think, and, and, and even though they were very, and, and Valerie kind of puts it this way in that, in that piece, that they were grateful. They were grateful that he was able to come back from the accident. And it, and it meant a huge amount to Hogan, the outpouring of support. So I think in the years, follow, the years immediately following the accident, you know, I think there was probably, you know, I mean, maybe euphoria is too strong a word, but I mean, he was playing great. Uh, he, um, 1953, he was being hailed as the best golfer ever, which was his dream. Um, obviously, uh, he was very satisfied with his game. You know, he, you know, as he talked about his game after his victory at the Masters, I mean, uh, he, he, he was. He couldn't, you know, you know, he was hitting the ball great. Um, about that time, uh, I believe there was an article where they, uh, Bobby Jones, Gene Saracen, and Henry Pickard were together, and they said they thought Ben Hogan was the best putter there ever was. Yeah, actually, that's exactly where I was back. going. I was going so, with that right so, now. So, I, I, so in 1953, he was at his pinnacle hitting the ball he was at the pinnacle putting and he and and, and those who watched him play said if he was absolutely masterful at the course management so he was at the top of the the heap and then he went to great britain he went to scotland and he won the british open which uh, he, he you know was i think meant an awful lot to him so i think up to that point he was feeling pretty good but then he started to lose tournaments and he, you know, he had close calls, you know, like at the Masters in 54, you know, heartbreaking loss at uh, the U.S. Open in 55, you know, a couple short putts cost him the U.S. Open in 56, and he, and, he, and he stopped winning. And I think winning meant a lot to him. And I think as he got older, he looked back, and he's, you know, 1948, he won nine of 12 tournaments, you know, starting with the PGA. And I, and I really think he felt cheated that he could not continue to play 
you know, I, I don't know how many tournaments he would have played a year because he was cutting his schedule back, intending to cut his schedule back dramatically. But I think he missed not being able to play 15 or 20 events a year and win 20% of them because that was his winning percentage. He, he won he won one out of five starts and was, uh, you know, I think he would have liked to have racked up a record in terms of number of wins that no one could ever touch. And if it hadn't been for the accident, I mean, even with losing those years to World War II, I think he would have passed Sneed. Um, he would have passed Sneed easily. Yeah. Let's go through three. I have three more myths to go into. We can do them in short order, but one of them you just touched on. This is a listener question from Twitter by from at Cup O New York Joe. Uh, what was it about putting that Hogan hated? Uh, he said at one point that it should only count as a half stroke. And that goes into, was Hogan a bad putter? I think you touched on this before. Okay. Well, you know, you know, I've never seen, you know, I, I can't document that Hogan actually said that. I mean, you know, I've certainly heard that he would play practice rounds when he has, you know, his, his putting clearly left, his putting clearly left him uh, in sort of the second half of the fifties. And, you know, and he, and he addressed that. He, you know, he, um, no, he, he had a theory that it was the brain froze because it couldn't figure out how to stroke the ball because he'd uh, putted on so many different types of grass, and you know it was sort of you know you know in, in, in that that and that to me was the explanation of the yips that was given to me by a friend of mine who works at Duke and at the Brain Institute there that you know. You can the brain can get to the point where it can't figure out what to do because it's it's done a certain task, you know, a, a couple of different ways, and it doesn't really know do I want door number one, door number two, or door number three. So it it, it kind of you know gets a little haywire, and and he did get his putting back uh, in the late fifties, and he had. You know, he didn't win, but he, he was in contention at uh, the U.S. Open in 59 in 1960. I think he lost a lot of enthusiasm for the game after uh, Cherry Hill in 1960. But, it, but, but I, I, you know, I don't, you know, okay, maybe he said he hated it. I don't know. I, I, focused, on, I focused on his career and what I can document his peers saying. And I have... You know, three Excel spreadsheets, you know, that must have, you know, 30, you know, 30 documented, um, you know, citations on each one of people extolling what a good putter he was. And, uh, you know, as I said, you know, in, in 1953, after he won the Masters, this threesome, you know, Sears and Jones Pickard saying, we think Hogan's the best putter ever. And, 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 and Sears in elaborating saying, you know, Hogan was always one of the best short putters. And, you know, you can find, you know, Sneed saying, uh, you know, Ben was always the best from nine in. Byron Nelson, who was probably Hogan's harshest critic, you know, acknowledging that Hogan was always an outstanding short putter. And, but then Saracen goes on that, you know, in, in, in his later career, maybe beginning around 1948, he also began to put the long ones very well. So, you know, he, he, he lost his ability to putt. You know, again, he uh, attributed to perhaps, you know, a form of, you know, just mental, you know, seizure. 
Uh, he, I, I've also heard it attributed that, you know, maybe damage to his left eye played a role. But, you know, Hogan was, I mean, you would be more likely to find Hogan won more events because of his putting than uh, he won because of his ball striking. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for example, you know, in Mark Brody's book, he does a very good job of analyzing, breaking down players by, you know, their different skill sets. And, you know, someone like VJ or Sergio, they have won tournaments, you know, in, in spite of their putting. You know, up until, I'd say, you know, post-accident, Hogan won far more tournaments because of his putting and his short game than he won because he was the superior ball striker. Let's jump into, uh, we've seen this one. I think we were on the uh, Society of Golf Historians Facebook page, and I think somebody came up with this. Another myth to dive into, uh, Ben Hogan should be credited with winning five U.S. Opens, uh, not the four that he's accredited with. Uh, could you dive into the myth that the Hail America Open, into the Hail America Open, and whether it was should be considered a U.S. Open? Oh, and I, I guess we should ask, because I, I think there's two different stories. Did Ben Hogan consider the Hail American Open a U.S. Open victory? He didn't before he won it. <laughs> you know, there's, I mean, yeah, I mean, Hogan kind of changed his tune on this one, and uh, there is an there is an article that appeared under his byline uh, in uh, that was published in 1942, and it was written before it was sort of a, a preview of the coming season. And in it, Hogan says, you know, I've had you know a lot of success to date. I've won a lot of tournaments. I've we've been a consistent money winner, but I haven't won any of the national titles. And Hogan considered the three important national titles to be the Masters the PGA and the U S open. And he said, so this year, you know, I'd, I'd obviously like to start by winning the masters and then the PGA, but the U S open is going to have to wait until after the war. So there it is black and white. Ben Hogan is acknowledging the hail America wasn't a U.S. open. Now then he wins it. And then he wants it to be counted as a U.S. open. You know, is that is that immediately after, or is it kind of in hindsight? Because everything I've well, seen about it is I, like I, years later. Am I no, wrong? No, no. I seem to recall him saying not long after winning it, you know, sort of going through. Well, gee, the qualifying was the same, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, I don't know whether he got into what the medal was the, the same, medal was but similar but, looking, but, right? But, yeah, same but, mold, but, but different. No, no. I, I seem to recall that he was making that case right out of the box. And, you know, and the, and the obvious problem with that is, you know, only the USGA can uh, say what a U.S. Open is. And, you know, you, you know you've had uh, people chiming in, I, I gather, on, you know, in, in some of your social media. I have a letter that Frank Hannigan wrote to one of the golf magazines when this came up years ago. You know, it's true that Joe Dye was sympathetic, but Joe Dye doesn't speak for the USGA. And the USGA is very clear. You know, it wasn't the U.S. Open. We canceled all our championships that year. Now, Hogan you know, Hogan will say, well, I have five medals and the president of the USGA gave me each one. Well, that's, you know, again, there's some truth to that. But 
if you see the picture of the presentation ceremony at the Hail American Open, three people are handing him medal. They're, they're the Ed Dudley of the PGA, George Blossom of the USGA, and a fellow who represented the Chicago PGA, who the three sponsors, and they are jointly giving him prizes. And there were two medals. There is a medal that was inscribed Hail America Open, and that was the one that used the, the blank that was donated by the USGA. But he also got a medal for the Chicago Victory Open, you know, that, that he'd won the pre- previous year. So he was actually credited with being the defending champion and, and, and the repeat winner of, of the Chicago Victory Tournament. So, you know, so was it three events? Was it the Hail America Open? Was it the U.S. Open? Was it the Chicago Victory Open? No, it was the Hail America Open. It was a fundraiser. And I, but that all said, I think it should definitely qualify as a major. You know, it was, it was clearly viewed in the press, you know, you know, uh, certainly by, uh, you know, Fred Corcoran of the PGA, um, you know, he, he considered it a major. Uh, I think the players considered it a major. I think the fans considered it a major. The headline you know, the head, there are headlines in the paper saying Hogan captures his first major win, the Hail America Open. Um, but there just isn't sort of a, an omnibus authority that, you know, tells people what majors were. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and so really 1960 where, you know, Arnold so, Palmer kind of invents it out of thin air. Well, or, I mean, well, well, he, well, he just put a catchy name yeah, on what, had been long recognized as the top four tournaments. Um, but, uh, you know, it kind of got forgotten. I mean, you know, you will find references in articles published in the 50s crediting him with that win, you know, as a major or a U.S. Open equivalent. But over time, it's kind of gotten forgotten. My own view is, you know, he and Dan Jenkins would have been better off rather than you know, making the argument that it was a U.S. Open, making the argument it should be counted as a major. Because, you know, that that to me is like, you know, a very easy case to make. You know, the other case, you know, you're saying the person who who's in charge of what's, you know, you're, you're saying that the person who's in charge of what, what, what a U.S. Open is, you know, doesn't have that, doesn't have that, uh, that authority and and that's and, and that that that's not going to prevail yeah let's go into the last one um it's the one iron at marion and there's two parts obviously to this i'll let you go into but another myth that i hear all the time is that ben hogan's one iron at marion into the 72nd green was one of the, one of the best shots if not the best shot in major championship history what are your thoughts on that myth and hogan's one iron well i mean hogan told us what he thought his greatest shot in uh, of his career, and I think it'll surprise many people. You know, after the his victory at the 1953 Masters, believe it or not, but it's in the newspapers. He said that his drive on the 13th hole, which was a draw around the corner of about 270 and 275 yards, that set up a second shot that could hit the green, was the finest shot of his career. So. so he doesn't list that shot. I mean, in his mind, 
and there is an interview where he goes into a lot of detail that, you know, he came to that, he had that shot. And if he wanted to get the ball close, uh, the correct shot was a faded uh, forward. Into the 72nd but, hole at Marion, you're talking about. Yeah, yeah they're talking, again, going back to, and then what, so it seems to me, you know, if, you, if you're going to evaluate, you know, a shot as a great shot, you've got to kind of take, you know, what was the shot? And, and according to Hogan, you know, the great shot would have been a faded forward to get the ball to the back right where the flag uh, was positioned. But he wasn't confident he could pull that shot off. And so he wasn't going to hit a shot where a bogey would result, was likely to result, and miss the playoff. So instead, he hit an iron that kind of bounced into the middle of the green and came to rest uh, 30 or 40 feet from the flag. And, you know, he, you know, he was fortunate to get down in two. You know, the, the second putt was no gimme, and it, and it kind of just dove in. It was breaking to the right, but it got in the hole. And, you know, he lived to, to, to play another day. So, and, 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 and of course, he, he downplays it in five lessons. He says, you know, that, that was, you know, I, I, I've hit that shot. You know, I've been preparing for that shot my whole life. I mean, there wasn't anything, you know, particularly, um, you know, special about it. it um, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't trying. He did what he said he was going to do in 1947. He played the hole the way it demanded to be played, right? Well, he, well he, in this particular case, he played so, so he didn't he didn't take himself out of the tournament. Yeah, I, and, right. I mean, that's one of the things Jack Jack always talks about. You know, you, you know, he learned early on. I think at a like the '63 uh, Crosby at Pebble Beach. You know, he went for a birdie on 18. He, he made a bogey, and he said, "You know, that was pretty dumb. I missed the playoff, and uh, because, you know." Uh, I, I, I got too aggressive, and and certainly Hogan was the master of that. So no, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of um, you know uh, uh, embellishment on. Yeah. I, th- on I how just think good- people confuse one of the best photos in golf history with the best shot. I think I think as time has passed, it, that that photo has become so iconic that the assumption is for those people that know haven't read about it that is one of the greatest shots of all time. It is one of the greatest photo shots yeah. of all time. It's a beautiful photograph. Yeah. And, and, and there is an identical photograph from the playoff. Right. Uh, except, yeah. except it's from 20 or 30 yards closer because he hit a better drive and he, and he hit a four iron and there's not nearly as big a crowd. So, uh, that, uh, you know, going back, Okay. Well, the the question of was it, was it a one iron or a two iron? I mean, I mean that's that's an interesting that's an, and, and 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 what was and what club was actually stolen, you know? And I think I think you know there's a lot we don't know and a lot we may never know there. Um, you know, suffice it to say, I think there are good arguments on the, the side that that it was actually a two iron. Well, Jeff, I'm sure we could go on for hours and hours on these topics, and perhaps we will in a future episode. But thank you so much for coming on the 26th episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Yeah, it was great, Connor. And uh, yeah, let's try to do this again or maybe some other format where we can have, um, you know, uh, people participate and, you know, questions. Well, folks, episode 26 is in the books. I sincerely hope 
that you take away a new appreciation for Ben Hogan. If there's any golfer alive or dead that is surrounded by more mystery than Ben Hogan, I just don't know who it is. The purpose of this podcast was to take a hard look at some of the myths that surround Ben Hogan. And by using the written word and periodicals of the era and dive into the past, perhaps we get a little bit closer to the man himself. Thank you again for listening to the Talking Golf History Podcast. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.